married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. He will, this, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who, she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be with me. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is God's word. You may be seated. It is our privilege this morning to have John DeSteiger, the seventh president of Oklahoma Christian University, as our guest speaker today. John did his undergraduate work at Northeastern State University and his graduate work at Pepperdine University. He's a native of Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Many float trips as a youth minister up there. Known to many students, he's known as Mr. D. They love him. He has a passion for leadership, higher education, but most of all, kingdom business. You know, uh, when they were picking the uh, seventh president at Oklahoma Christian, I would ask Dr. Branch every once in a while, how's it going? How's it going? Because our guy winning like it was a contest. <laughs> when I asked him about Mr. DeSiger, he said, we got the one I wanted. And that was enough for me. For the last 23 years, we've been, Oklahoma Christian has been a gracious host to our uh, summer camps. And when Mr. DeSteiger took over, I was hoping that we would be able to continue, and we've been able to do that. And one of the things that we hear from students and faculty and staff all the time is that John has great compassion and great care, and he leads with a humble spirit. And John, come up here as uh, I pray for you this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, allowing uh, the ministry of the Desiders at Oklahoma Christian University. We thank you for the opportunity for them to be here this morning. And Father, we just ask that you bless his words this morning. And Father, bless our hearts as uh, he speaks boldly your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Richard. Can you hear me okay in the back? Do you want to hear me okay in the back? Richard, thanks for that kind introduction. That is just how Mom wrote it. Um, we, I tell you, we love Richard. Richard and Janet are so good to Oklahoma Christian, and he said he hoped that OC would allow the camps to continue. Our prayer is that the camps will continue for decades and decades and decades as well. We love MacArthur Park. This is a great church for lots and lots of reasons. 
We love the students you send us. We love the time that you spend with us. We love the example that you set in the kingdom of God. I tell you, I love Sylvia Branch. Sylvia and Charles, two of my favorite people of all time. Um, Alfred, their fourth son, is one of my best friends. And I'm the seventh president because Alfred was the fifth president at Oklahoma Christian for a very, very important year. Sylvia, we love you and we miss Charles greatly. Darla and I uh, were in class this morning and we loved the class that we were in. I think it's called Young Families. Any class that I can attend that still uses the adjective young is a class that I'm going to enjoy. Well, Daryl Hutchinson was teaching the class and I learned a couple of really great things from him. One of the things that he taught was Eutychus fell out of the upper window because Paul preached for more than 23 minutes. So start your clocks uh, now. You don't have as far to fall, it doesn't, it doesn't appear. Uh, Darla turned to me midway through class and she said, Is that Hudson's dad? Now I know what Hudson looks like 30 years from now. Uh, we, we love Hudson. He's doing a great job at, at Memorial Road with the college group. Saw Jaron's mom this morning. We love your students. They are very, very special to us. Oh, by the way, I almost forgot. I have a note here that was just handed to me a minute ago by the elders. Um, and I was asked to read this. Dear guests, thank you for joining us this morning. Please know that John is not our regular preacher. In fact, as far as we know, John is not anyone's regular preacher. Please give us a second chance and come back next week. Sincerely, the elders. So, Mark, thanks for sharing your pulpit, and then uh, hopefully everybody will be back. Uh, you know, I, I get a little bit nervous every time before I stand up and speak, and it's because of an experience that I had when I was 16 years of age. My dad was a naval aviator. It was a real pleasure to meet Lee Stone this morning. I've actually met his son twice in the last three weeks. A granddaughter is going to be coming to OC, and it's a pleasure to meet another naval aviator. Well, we, dad had retired, and we moved to a small town in eastern Oklahoma, Tahlequah. And the youth group in Tahlequah, there were a number of young men, and we actually went to a lot of the area churches and got to lead services. We would do the announcements, and we'd do the Lord's Supper, and we'd do prayers and lead singing, and we got to preach. So we were in big cities like Stillwell and Westville and Keys and Scraper, Oklahoma. Well, one particular uh, summer when I was 16, I was invited to, to attend and preach at the Moody Church of Christ. Well, I was not invited to preach because I was a good preacher. I was invited to preach because my grandmother, Mama Dean, was related to half of the people that attended, uh, that attended the Moody Church. So that, that morning in July, my grandmother and I got up. Uh, I drove her in her red Chevy Citation to Moody, which is a suburb of Tahlequah, and I began preaching. And I am, I am bringing a message, I tell you. It's getting hotter and hotter for me. I take my jacket off, I put it on the bench that is up on the stage, and I keep preaching. And then in the, the periphery of my, of my vision, it begins to get kind of gray and dark. And it begins to move its way toward the middle. And my, I'm, I'm developing tunnel vision while I'm preaching right then. The room begins to spin. The next thing I know, I am laying flat on my back. 
I have passed out and six adults are all crowded around me on the stage at the Moody Church of Christ. An older gentleman says, his eyes are fluttering, back away, he needs air, he needs air. And sure enough, they then helped me up and I did what any self-respecting 16-year-old young man would do. I finished my sermon. Well, it's all over. My grandmother and I get back in the car and she never had a cross word for me. She, she praised and complimented everything that I did. Uh, I was her favorite, and if my two sisters were here, they would admit to you that I was her favorite. So we're in her car, I'm driving, she's looking out the passenger side window, and I'm thinking, what in the world is she going to say? After a couple of minutes, she says, well, and she looks over at me, and I thought, okay, here it comes. And she said, well, you don't see that every Sunday morning now, do you? So we get home, I rest up, and that night I'm back at, at, at church uh, that evening at the South College Church of Christ, and one of my buddies comes up to me and says, Hey, I heard you preached at Moody this morning. How did it go? And I looked around to make sure Mama Dean was not within earshot, and I said, It was unbelievable. <laughs> and he said, Unbelievable? What do you mean? I said, Six people came forward during my sermon this morning. <laughs> so... If I pass out, Mark, would you please bring seven people up to, to check on me? Well, I love quotes. I love, I love to think about quotes. I love to hear quotes. I love to memorize quotes because quotes often make me sound a lot smarter than I really am. And they make me think in deeper ways than I often do. Darla, for the longest time, put a quote up on our refrigerator. It was from Louisa May Alcott. And the quote was this. Um, I'm not afraid of storms because I'm learning to sail my ship. I, I kind of like that. How about this quote? Tell me who said this. <clears throat> um, Today you are you that is truer than true. There's no one alive who is youer than you. Wow, this is a learned audience right here. Dr. Seuss. Okay, very, very good. Uh, I love Yogi Berra as well. He's always good for a quote. This one... Always attend other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't attend yours. <laughs> yeah, think about that for just a little bit. But, but there are actually some quotes that I like because they really answer dilemmas in my life. I have three dilemmas in my life that I want to share with you and three quotes that answer these dilemmas. Now, I'll tell you... I've got a lot more dilemmas than this. Invite me back and we'll talk about dilemmas 14, 15, and 16 sometime. But these are three dilemmas that have quotes that were recorded by a man who was a true Renaissance man. This fellow was a, he was a doctor. He was a world traveler. He was a researcher and a historian of the first rate. I'm talking about Luke. So here is my first dilemma. Sometimes in my life, I look at a situation or I look at a person or I look at a relationship and I think it's never going to change. It's impossible to change. And I become discouraged. Now, I want you to know that I, I think in reading through the Bible, there are lots of examples where I'm kind of standing right where followers of God are. We see something, we think it's never going to change, and frankly, we become discouraged. Put, your, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. For almost 400 years, you and your father and your grandfather, in fact, all the generations prior, for generation after generation, you've been slaves to the most powerful nation on earth, and you don't see it changing. 
you're a slave to the Egyptians and you're afraid your children will be slaves to the Egyptians, it's impossible to change. And then Moses shows up on the stage or shows up again on the stage and everything changes. Or maybe even shortly after that, you now have your freedom, you're heading out, you're escaping, you were slaves and you were poor, but now you've got everything that you asked for from the Egyptians and they sent you off. But then you come up to the edge of the Red Sea and in front of you is water destruction and behind you Pharaoh has changed his mind with his armies destruction and it's impossible and you become discouraged and Moses steps back out with the staff given him by God and the water parts or maybe several generations later you're in the army of God and there you are on one hill and the enemy is on the far hill and into the valley steps that giant of a man and he does it every morning and he does it every night and he makes fun of you and he makes fun of your fellow soldiers. He makes fun of your king. He even makes fun of your God and you become discouraged because nobody can take him on. And then young David shows up with food for his brothers and Goliath falls. Or maybe you are living out in the hinterlands of the largest empire the world had seen and then you hear the decree that has come from King Xerxes. And the decree is, if you're a Jew, you're going to die. On this month in the future, on this day, it is open season on you. And you know that the edict of the king cannot be changed. It's impossible. So you become discouraged. And then Mordecai goes to Esther. And that maybe was the reason that she was in that position of royalty for just such a time as this, and things change. Or in the New Testament, you have become a Christian, and it's an amazing thing because now your family is big and you care about each other. There are people who love you and will do anything for you. And it's a new time. And then you hear the concern, and that is Saul of Tarsus, the man who actually puts followers of the way in jail, the the man who stands there and holds things so people are not burdened when they are stoning Stephen. He is coming to your town, and he has papers, and he can throw you in jail, and you become discouraged. And then Saul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, and everything changes. Rodney read a passage to us from Luke chapter 1. Think about that particular encounter. Gabriel the angel goes to Nazareth. He goes to a young woman and he says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And she is scared. When you meet an angel, you're scared. Same thing happened to Zechariah earlier in that chapter. Now, I've got to tell you, my favorite movie of all time, It's a Wonderful Life. Every Christmas season, I force my wife and my son Joe and my daughter Abby and my mother-in-law Levada and her husband Tom into the room. I put the DVD in and we watch It's a Wonderful Life. Someday, they're going to appreciate this family tradition. (laughs) In It's a Wonderful Life, there's an angel depicted. The angel's name is Clarence and he's working on his wings. I will tell you, Clarence is no Gabriel. When you see an angel, it scares you. But Gabriel goes on and tells Mary, don't be afraid because the Lord is with you and you will be with child and you'll give birth to a son and you'll name him Jesus. He'll be known as the son of the Most High. 
He will rule over the throne of his father David. He will rule over the household of Jacob forever and ever. His kingdom will not come to an end. He will be great. And Mary says, how can this be? This can't be because I'm a virgin. And Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come to you. The power of God on high will overshadow you. That's why your son will be known as the son of the Most High. And Elizabeth, your relative, the woman in her old age who's said to be barren, she is in her sixth month. When you become discouraged and think things are impossible and they're never going to change, Gabriel's quote recorded by Luke in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. Back in 1989, there was a, a devastating earthquake that hit the small country of Armenia. The earthquake was measured at about an 8.5 on the Richter scale. In the span of four minutes, 30,000 Armenians lost their lives. There is a story told of a young father that as soon as the earthquake was over, he raced home to check and make sure his wife was okay, and she was. His next task was to race to the school where he had taken his young son, Armand, earlier that morning. He had always told his young son, Armand, no matter what, son, I will be there for you. He gets to the school, and it is utter devastation, and he is stunned. He gathers his thoughts. He goes to the place where he thought his son would have been in class when the earthquake hit, and he began pulling debris, rubble, and, and bricks, and what appeared to be rubble, uh, uh, boulders out of the way. Other parents began to arrive on the scene, and they were crying and wailing, and they went to Armand's father and said, it's no use, our children are dead, you're going to make it worse. And he said, will you help me? Later on, a firefighter comes to him and says, it's not, it's not safe to be here, it's dangerous, there are underground gas lines, they could explode, you need to move from here. Armand's father said, will you help me? And he kept pulling stuff out. The chief of police comes and says, we're cordoning off this area, this is our job. And Armand's father does not stop, and he says, will you help me? He digs by hand rubble out for 8 hours and for 16 hours, for 24 hours, for 36 hours. In the 38th hour, he dislodges a large rock, and he thinks he hears something, and so he shouts down into the opening that he is creating. He said, Armand, can you hear me? And the voice comes back, Dad, I knew you would come for me. Armand's father said, Armand, what's it like down there? And Armand said, two walls collapsed together and they left a pocket. And Dad, I've got 13 of my classmates with me. And I told them if they'll just hang on, if you were still alive, you would rescue them because I knew you would come for me. When things seem bad, when you think it's impossible, remember that nothing is impossible for God and our God will come for us. Here's my second dilemma. My second dilemma is sometimes I lose my balance because there are so many voices out there that are calling for my attention. Sometimes I listen to the wrong voice. I, I, was, I was making this point once and I told an audience, I hear voices. <laughs> and that, that's not exactly what I mean, although I... I guess I do hear voices, but not in the way you think I hear voices. Sometimes I listen to the wrong voice. 
And there are lots of voices that want our attention. And every voice, whether it's on the Internet or on television or in the movies, every voice, whether it's our friends or those that we work with, everybody has an opinion. And brothers and sisters, they want us to have an opinion that is just exactly like their opinion. In Luke chapter 9... Jesus took his three closest apostles, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain to pray. Now, this is about eight days after Peter has had his highest spiritual point and his lowest spiritual point almost at the same time, in the same conversation. Jesus asked, who are people saying that I am? And, and the apostles said, eight days prior to this event, they said, well, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're John the Baptist come back, some say you're a great prophet. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah of God. High point. Then Jesus says, during that conversation, I'm going to be killed. And Peter said, no, we'll keep that from happening. That won't happen. Low point when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Eight days later, Jesus takes these three up on the mountain to pray. And the the same thing seems to happen every time these three go off with Jesus to pray. I don't know if you know what a trigger is or a triggering event. A triggering event is something, you experience something and you're, you kind of react to it in the same way, almost automatically. Okay, so here's an example for me. I like to go to the movie. Darla and I will plan to go to the movie and I will be disciplined in my mind and I say, I'm not going to get popcorn today. We buy our tickets, we step into the movie, uh, the, the, the auditorium, not the auditorium, but the, um, the foyer there, and what's the first thing that hits you really hard? Does it smell good or what? And so I think, okay, well, what I really meant to say was I was only going to buy the smallest popcorn <laughs> with no butter, and so I'm up at the counter, and I said, like a small popcorn and no butter, please. And I try to say it loud enough for my wife to hear so she'll be proud of how disciplined I am. The young man says, yes, sir, small popcorn, no, no butter. That'll be $5.50. And then he says, while I'm handing him the money, he said, sir, you know, for 50 cents more, you can have the 32-gallon size of popcorn. <laughs> and I say, you're right. I'll take two of those, and I want a lot of butter, please. So, so that's one of my triggering events. Peter, James, and John, their triggering event, they go to a place, a quiet place with Jesus to begin to pray, and they get sleepy. Same thing happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. They begin to come to, and by the way, Jesus has changed. His countenance, his appearance has changed. His clothes are as bright as a flash of lightning. The apostles are waking up and they're sleepy, but they see that Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah, and they also have changed their look. They look special as well. And they're talking to Jesus about his departure, which will soon be fulfilled in Jerusalem. As they begin to leave, Peter spouts up. He says, Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three shelters, three altars, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And as he says that, and by the way, I love the parenthetical that Luke puts in because he didn't know what to say. As he says that, a cloud comes in and envelops them, and they become scared. And the voice of God comes through the cloud and says, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Remember my dilemma. Remember my dilemma. I listened to too many voices. 
I lose my balance. God, this is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. The story goes that the phone call came in shortly after midnight. I don't know about you, but any time I get a late night call, it's never good news. The ringing of the phone next on the bedstand jarred the mom awake, and she reached over. She was dazed, didn't know where she was, confused, picked up the phone. She put it to her ear, and a young voice on the other end said, Mom, Mom, I am so, so sorry. I'm sorry that I ran away. I love you. I want to come home. Well, the voice of the young girl during that brought mom sitting straight up in bed. And her husband woke up and said, who is it? And the young mom nodded her head, shook her head no. He jumps out of bed. He runs down the hall. And the voice continues, mom, I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm so, so sorry, but I'm coming home. The dad comes back in the room. The dad clicks the line so he can listen on another phone. And the young girl says, Mom, did you just hang up on me? Did, did you just hang up the phone? And the young mom says, No, I, I didn't. I'm still here. But, but I want you to know. And the young girl continues, Mom, please stop talking. You always have the answer. You always have something to say. I need you to listen. I've made some mistakes. I want to come home. I've been drinking tonight. I started coming home thinking I could make it, but I, but I pulled over and I've stopped the car and I've called a friend to come pick me up and bring me home. But mom, talking to you, I think maybe I can go ahead and I think I can go ahead and make it home myself. The young mom said, "Don't start your car. Wait for your friend to come." A couple of minutes later, the mom hears a sound of a car that's pulling up where the girl is, and she says, Mom, my friend is here. Thank you for listening. I love you. I'll be home soon. She hangs up the phone. The mom and the dad, they hang up the phone. They stand up and they embrace at the end of their bed. And then without saying a word, they, they walk around the side of their bed and out the door and down the hall, and they push open the door to their 16-year-old daughter's bedroom. And they go in and they stand at the foot of their 16-year-old daughter's bed. And they're arm in arm, and they are gazing down at their daughter who is laying there asleep. After a couple of seconds, the dad whispers to the mom, do you think that young lady will realize she called the wrong number. And the mom turned to the dad and said, maybe she didn't call the wrong number. At about that moment, their daughter wakes up, and she's a little bit creeped out that her mom and dad are standing at the end of the bed. And she says, what are you all doing here? And the mom says, we're practicing. And the daughter says, what are you practicing? And as she's asking the question, she is falling back asleep and she doesn't hear her mom say, we're practicing listening. Do you ever lose your balance like I do because you listen to the wrong voices? God said, listen to Jesus. Here's my third dilemma. I like my stuff. I like my house. 
I like my car. I like my clothes. My kids tell me there's really no rational reason why I should like my clothes. But I like my stuff. But you know what I realize? Sometimes I realize I like my stuff too much. Sometimes I realize that I don't possess my things as much as my things possess me. I don't own my stuff. My stuff owns me. Back decades ago, one of our brothers in Christ debated a well-known atheist throughout this part of the United States. And one of the things that our brother regularly said in those debates were, this world tells me I should love stuff and use people. My God tells me I should love people and use stuff. Acts chapter 20. Paul is... um, This, by the way, takes place right after Paul preached too long and Eutychus fell and died and and Paul brought him back. Uh, Paul is heading toward Jerusalem and he wants to get there by by Pentecost. And so he actually wants to see the elders at Ephesus, but he doesn't want to go there. He wants them to come to him in Miletus because I think he thinks he can talk to them and move on more quickly. And so he calls for them and they come. And he meets with the, the elders from Ephesus and he tells them, You all know that through great persecution and lots of tears, I preached the word among you. I preached to Gentiles and to Jews. I preached in public settings. I preached house to house. This is the last time that I will talk to you. I told people that they needed to turn to God in repentance and put their faith in Jesus. I warned you that there were going to be some that arose among your number that would be like savage wolves. They would... They would enter the flock and they would tear it apart. And I also, you know from me spending time with you that I never coveted any man's clothing or silver or gold, but with these hands I provided for myself and my companions. And it's by hard work we should provide for those who are weak. And remember, my dilemma is sometimes I like my stuff too much. In verse 35 of chapter 20 of Acts, Paul then reminds the elders at Ephesus the words of the Master Jesus when he said, remember what Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Back a couple years ago at Oklahoma Christian, there was uh, uh, 80% of our undergraduates live on campus. Our housing department was going to be thankful to the students, and so there was a drawing that was announced. You had to be present to win, and what you would win was a brand new iPad 2. So the group had gathered under the McGraw Pavilion at Lawson Commons. Judy Davis pulls a name out of the hat, and the name of the student to win the iPad 2 was Octavius. Now, Octavius was one of our Rwandan students. We've got a great relationship with Rwanda. Well, Octavius had gone into the building next door. Two of his friends jumped up and raced in to find him. But it took a little bit. And Judy finally decided he's not coming. And besides, the rule was you had to be present to win. So she pulls another name out of the hat. It's a young man by the name of Ryan. Ryan is there. Ryan stands up. He begins walking forward. And as he stands up, the door opens. And here comes Octavius. The anxiety level in the crowd goes up. Here we are. We're about to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. 
Ryan keeps walking up front. He's handed his iPad to. He pivots, and without breaking stride, he walks right over to Octavius and hands it to Octavius and says, you will make better use of this than I. That's a pretty great story. The story gets even better. Several days later, one of our staff members who witnessed that goes to a conference off campus. At this conference, there is a door prize giveaway. The door prize giveaway is an iPad 2. The OC staff member wins the iPad 2. He comes back to campus and he finds Ryan and he gives him the iPad 2. Brothers and sisters, I want to be like Ryan and that staff member. I want to own my stuff rather than it owning me. Three dilemmas. These are my dilemmas. You might share in some of these dilemmas. But nothing is impossible for God. Listen to Jesus. And it's more blessed to give than receive. Do you have a reason you might want to come forward and ask for prayers? Seek Christ in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins? Is there a way that we can encourage you or share a burden that you have? If there is, would you please come forward while we stand and while we sing? He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort for